You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Are Arasanya, who is co-founder and president of Moving Analytics, a telehealth company that is increasing access to cardiac rehab and helping patients recover faster at home through an innovative app-based virtual cardiac rehab program, Move It. This means that if you have a heart attack, instead of having to go in every day or almost every day into a rehab facility, you can get the help you need remotely, which is even more important these days. So Moving Analytics program are developed in partnership with Stanford University and are based on more than 30 years of published research. Ade is also a lecturer of entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California. Prior to launching Moving Analytics, Ade worked in the tech transfer office of the University of Southern California. Ade grew up in Lagos, Nigeria and moved to the U.S. to study electrical engineering at the University of Houston. And he later got a master's at the University of Southern California and a certificate in finance from UCLA, recently recognized as a top 30 under 30 in healthcare by Forbes magazine. In this episode, we discuss the change formula and what it takes for someone to make a change in their life. Becoming vertically integrated as a company, licensing IP from a university and the different approaches of tech transfer offices, COVID's impact on telehealth and creating the next generation of multicultural angels and a bunch more. I know you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Ade, it's so great to have you on. You too, Miles. Thank you. You know where I'd love to start is what is your view on why it takes a catastrophic cardiac event for some people to make the lifestyle changes that they need? That is a great question. And it's a question I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think it just boils down to motivation, right? So when you think about the risk factors for heart disease, things like hypertension or cholesterol, oftentimes there are symptoms that we can't appreciate. You know, you have to go do a lab test or put on a blood pressure cuff and you get a number, but you're not feeling like, oh, my blood pressure is high or my cholesterol is high versus like if you had a headache, right? Or migraine where you're like, hey, you know, I need to get rid of this pain. So let me go do something about it. And so you have a situation where it kind of creeps up on you. And by the time you, God forbid, have a heart attack, then, you know, it's now like very real. And what we, what I, what we find from a lot of our patients are that this is the first time they're kind of confronting their mortality and their morbidity, you know, now they're very motivated to want to change because they've had this, this event happen. And so I think it's just like, motivation right there's no you know there's this quote that i read a long time ago and i don't know who who said it but it's like people don't change till the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change and so it's just that you know i think it's more behavioral science than anything yeah i think that's fascinating because you're basically in the change business you know i've heard the change formula described as the the pain of the status quo and also times the vision of the new thing, yeah. uh, plus any 
first or next steps. So like first steps are just a little addition, but the multiplier is your vision, how wonderful it could be. But that pain seems to be a big motivator in most cases. Yeah, it is. It's unfortunate, but it definitely is. But I agree. I agree with you that the vision is also important. I think that that's something that in, in my experience, in, in my work, one of the things that our coaches do with the patients really is to ask them kind of like, what's their new why? You know, so you've had this cardiac event, you know, you're at home one day watching TV, you get a heart attack, you rush to the hospital, you get a surgery, you made it through that surgery. And what's your why now? And in a lot of cases, you know, people want to live enough to live long enough to see the kids graduate or, you know, walk their grandkids down the aisle or, you know, make it to some milestone, you know, in their journey. And we find that that vision, like you mentioned, we then use that to kind of put the rest of their care in context. You know, so, you know, we know after a heart attack, one thing you should be doing, like improving your nutrition, your sleep, exercising, taking your medicines. I know things are fine and good, but when you put it in context of, hey, you need to do this because, you know, if you do, you would be able to, you know, see your grandkids or do whatever you want to do. I think then, you know, people are more willing to be um, adherent to those behaviors. And, you know, one of the things we're finding in our program is we've actually never had to incentivize a patient to do our program, you know, in terms of like giving them cash or money or prizes. You know, we a lot of our patients are so intrinsically motivated because of they've had that near-death experience. They don't want to have it again. And like you said, there's the vision for now, you know, I want to, I have purpose in my life and in my health, you know, to, to, to achieve whatever those, those goals are. So very interesting formula. I, I had to take that and borrow that and share that with my team. Yeah, I think you also help with the first steps part of it. Um, when someone knows they need to make a change, part of your program, as I understand it, is to lay out and make very concrete and accessible those first steps they should be making. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this, you know, change um, philosophy is that a lot of times people just feel overwhelmed with the amount of information that they need to comprehend to then figure out how to change. So I, I think it's like, um, so I have a Peloton, right? And one of the things that I really enjoy about the Peloton with the bike experience, but also just using the app and doing the, you know, the classes, is that it takes away that cognitive process of like thinking about what you need to do, you know? So before I had to think about like how many reps I need to do or how many sets and all that kind of stuff, right? And that in itself, like, I feel like reduces your willpower, you know, eventually to go do the exercise you need to do in that particular case. And so we're finding that typically after a patient is discharged, they go see the cardiologist and the cardiologist is like, hey, great, you made it. Well, we're going to need you to do XYZ things. I need you to take the six medicines every day. I need you to exercise, change your diet, sleep better. Like, and it can become very, very overwhelming for, for the patient. One of the things that we've found that patients have given us feedback on is that they really value that they have this coach, you know, who is an experienced clinician. So they're typically nurses or exercise physiologists that have cardiac rehab backgrounds. And the patient sees this coach as this like authority, but also as a guide and a friend and a mentor that's kind of helping them through this process. And they know that that person is going to break down, you know, 
all the things they need to do into like just simple daily goals. So they don't have to kind of overthink, you know, like their recovery. They know that, you know, I have, you know, faith as my coach and faith is going to really kind of walk me through this process. And so people are just more able to be adherent, you know, when they have that kind of, a, of the sense of, you know, they have a coach. And I think that's also a very powerful tool in just change. Yeah. Having a coach, having accountability, that makes a lot of sense. When did you decide that you were going to hire clinical staff? Yeah, that's a big one. I think when I met you, when did that? And it's something we had thought of doing. I think innovation is interesting, right? When you think about how you innovate in a space, especially in healthcare, where it's so regulated and it's, it's very difficult. Our initial business model at Movie Analytics was a SaaS business model, right? Where we built the platform and we expected that we could sell it to existing cardiac rehab programs. And we expected that they would be able to use that to offer care virtually. While that sounded good on paper and we got some customers against that model, we learned that track, getting traction there was going to be hard for a couple of reasons. One was the staff already in the clinic, in the, in the cardiac rehab centers were already very busy and overworked. In many cases, they were understaffed. So kind of adding a new technology to the workflow was creating more work and there was no firepower behind it. And then when you think about healthcare, fundamentally, the business model, the providers are not very incentivized to invest in like long-term prevention. You know, their business models, they make most of their money from doing the big heart surgeries, you know, or the transplants or the, you know, those, those big interventions. And when you think about like rehab in context of that, the revenue is so small that they're just not very motivated to invest in that. But when you flip it over to, you know, who cares about improving about cardiac rehab or recovery after a heart condition, the two people that really care, the patient number one, right? They've had this event and we've talked about the patient's perspective. They, they don't want to get a second heart attack and they don't want to die, right? So that's a very strong motivation motivator for that patient. But in American healthcare system, you know, patients don't want to pay for care. Now, on the other side, you have the insurance company, right? That is the patient is paying a monthly premium to, and then they have like all the motivations around reducing costs because every time someone has a heart attack, it's about $30,000 for them. And on average, you know, the research shows that, you know, almost 40 to 50% of people get a second heart attack within 12 months. So when you think about that, you know, you then have like a population of people who are costing you north of, you know, $60,000 a year. And then that becomes a very expensive population. So as we thought about who really had the need, we kind of had to evolve the business model to address those two groups, right? The hospital is kind of a interesting middleman, you know, in this case where they do the surgeries, but the post-acute care piece is not as exciting to them. And so instead of trying to convince someone that's not already very motivated to do something, we said, why don't we kind of align more with the payer and the patient? And so to do that, you know, the health plans know how to buy three things. They know how to buy provider services, drugs, and devices, and they know how to pay for that. And so as we're doing this exercise, we kind of figured that we had to align with one of those pathways. And so the provider pathway was something that we could align with. And so essentially we evolved our business model to where we are a virtual cardiac rehab clinic, you know, and we have, you know, in the different states that we operate, we have 
um, registered a medical group in their state, and that medical group goes to contract with the health plan. Um, and so we're providing the network. So from a health plan's perspective, it's actually pretty easy because they aren't, they're just paying us the way they'll pay any other, you know, doctor in the network. And as part of that, you know, we also not only provide the technology, but we provide the, you know, the coach who's like a nurse or an exercise physiologist. We also have medical director of the cardiologist so that obviously is the care. And so in our business model now, we can sell directly to the health plan, you know, and kind of be vertically integrated. It's allowed us to capture a lot of the value, right? So before we're trying to charge a SaaS model where we're getting maybe like up to hundred dollars a month, you know, per, per, per user. And in this case, we're getting thousands of dollars to manage care because now we're taking care of the whole thing. And so that's, that was kind of like the thought process going into like that pivot for us. Yeah, that's fascinating. I wonder if there's any lessons there for other founders who are thinking about healthcare. Do you think that vertical integration is a pattern that should be repeated in other areas? I really think that it just depends on your value prop, right? And you, you have to kind of boil it down to who's really going to benefit from this, right? And a lot of times the provider is not the one benefiting from it. And so in as much as like you want speed and to be able to capture the value, I think one of the things that we also thought about in this, in this exercise as we're going through this business model pivot, I can sell like 20 hospitals, and it's going to take a long time and the revenue per hospital is going to be X. Or I can sell like two, three pairs that would give me like thousands of patients a year, right? Because this, that's all concentrated. And so when you think about who's really going to benefit from your service, you know, thinking about that vertical approach is important. And, and for me, you know, this is not something that I discovered on my own. One of my close friends and now a board member is Adrian James at Amata Health. When they, when they started, I was very fascinated by the fact that like this digital health company that had founders that weren't, you know, clinicians could build a clinical service where they had like, you know, healthcare providers providing care. And that's something that I thought was like, you know, like, wow, like it felt like rocket science to me. And the more I talked to Adrian, you know, the more he kind of helped me understand the dynamics and it didn't seem as big of a task, you know, to kind of, a lot of times people feel like, oh, wow, like, you know, being a healthcare provider, they're, they're scared about that, that whole approach and taking on that risk. But there's ways to mitigate that risk from a liability perspective where it's actually not as, as daunting as it may seem. What else did you learn th in through talking with him? I, I said, it's not as daunting, but at the same time, when you take on, you know, this type of model, then you have to think about like a lot of regulatory things around compliance and like how you make sure that you're just playing by the rules. So that's something that's important as well. And then, you know, we talk a lot about just scale. I think they're at a point where they've, they're, they've almost hit the half a million patient mark, you know, so it's interesting, you know, when we talk about vertical, in, like the vertical approach in healthcare, because in that model, your service provider, right? Fundamentally, like you're going to a health plan or a customer and saying, hey, I'm going to manage the entire delivery of this service for you, right? I think what we're different is that you're now doing it with technology and so you're a technology-enabled provider of care um, in that way, but you're still a, a service company. You know, we've kind of struggled with, okay, on our business model, we are a provider but do we really want to be in the business of like hiring like 
a ton of cardiologists and nurses and like all these things and how does that scale over time? And so we're also experimenting with different models of like that care delivery piece where in some cases, like we're partnering with established organizations. So for example, we signed a partnership with the Mayo Clinic where the Mayo Clinic is actually powering our program. So the cardiologists and the nurses and the exercisologists in some of our accounts are part by the Mayo Clinic. In some of our accounts, they're part by our own, you know, people that we've hired and trained, you know, by ourselves. And so we're kind of watching the dynamics of those two models to see kind of scale long-term, you know, which one works, right? Because I mean, if the mayor partnership works, then that would be an interesting business model, right? To, to kind of on the front end of the house contract as a provider, but on the back end have like an, another provider that has like a lot of experience being a provider run that ship. And so those are different things that we get to talk about <laughs> with him. I kind of like bounce and get his thoughts on. And so uh, it always makes it a very fun and thought provoking conversation. Yeah, great to have that kind of mentor. Yep. You both, I think, are in this space of telehealth, you know, digital health, and the world has really embraced that over the last year. I'm curious what that change has been like for you. It's been exciting because it feels like finally, like we're getting heard, heard by, by the customers. I feel, so it's interesting. I've been building this company since 2013, right after grad school. We didn't immediately launch the product in 2013, but in 2013, after we graduated from grad school, we had some, some intellectual property that we eventually kind of commercialized to, to what we're doing today. And I've been going to the rehab conferences for now five years. And initially it was like, you know, who are these guys and what's virtual rehab? And it was like, the conversation went and proved to me that you can deliver virtual cardiac rehab as safe and as effective as brick and mortar. And so a lot of the time we're spending educating people that like, hey, look at all the science from Stanford and from other organizations that delivering cardiac rehab at home is safe and effective. And then, you know, people kind of went, got over that. And I think with COVID, two things were happening. One, people became more interested in, okay, so how do we actually implement a program instead of thinking through if it's gonna work? And then the second piece of it was the biggest barrier we've had in, in, in our business model is the insurance coverage, right? So virtual rehab for the most part hasn't been reimbursed by Medicare and many of the commercial payers, you know, up until last year. And so with last year, all the payers going very bullish on telehealth, you know, and including Medicare, uh, even though that took, it took, it took a bit of an effort to, to make Medicare actually cover, cover virtual rehab that really kind of broke, you know, a lot of the barriers people had before. So before people were like, it's not reimbursed, we don't know if it's the science behind it. You know, we don't know how we're going to implement it. And we're feeling like, you know, all of the, it was kind of the last, you know, piece of the puzzle to really open and create the market. Now it's like, you know, the market is open and now we're seeing like a ton of competitors come into the space. And it's been interesting just kind of watching that. And it's like, hey, we've been here preaching this gospel of virtual rehab for now pretty almost almost a decade. And everybody's coming around to it and you know when I when I go into pitch today a customer is not asking me or prove to me that this works they kind of just want to know how this you know logistically is going to interface with their own workflows and their own processes and how we implement it and so that's been really good you know I think to just finally have the market you know kind of being a place where it's ready to buy you know a product like this yeah the market is finally catching up to you you're a pioneer 
I'm curious for you to share with us that founding story. How did it come together? An interesting story. So I, prior to, to studying movie analytics, I was working at the University of Southern California in our technology transfer office called USC Stevens. And so what we did in this office was we essentially were reviewing all the intellectual property that was being created through the research campus. And we were flagging the ones that we wanted to file patent on, you know, and then some we just said, yeah, there's not a lot of commercial interest. So, you know, we didn't necessarily file intellectual property on them. Now, once we got a patent for, for technology, there was two things we could do with it. So we could either try to license that, you know, IP to a larger company, you know, so I think the one you think, so the OLED screens that are very popular on the Samsung phones, um, USC had a patent for that, you know, so in that case, you know, USC licensed this OLED technology to a Samsung and the Samsung, you know, pays them a lot of money for, for that. So that's one pathway. The second pathway is we take that IP and say, hey, why don't we launch this company, you know, work with the professor to, to spin out this company out of the university. So I was on the team that was doing the, you know, the spin-offs or the, the new ventures team. Part of my job was understanding the, tech, the, the technology capabilities of, of, of the intellectual property, kind of trying to juxtapose that on the market in, in terms of like, you know, okay, so where in the world would this, you know, this make sense? You know, a lot of times academic innovations are very, you know, they're designing a very controlled lab environment and they're not really thinking through the real world use cases a lot. So part of what I needed to do using my engineering background was kind of figure out, okay, what kind of technology, you know, contribute to, to, to industry. And then once we kind of figured that out, was then going to find other entrepreneurs in that space who had done something similar. Um, so, and, and then have them become like a mentor team to the professor who's developed this technology. And then with the professor, kind of working with them around the gate. So how involved do you want to be with starting this company? Do you want to be the CEO or do you want to be like a CTO or technical advisor? Um, and so in some cases, also thinking through hiring a CEO for, for, for that venture. And so, so that's kind of my job. I did that for a bunch of, of technologies. In 2012, my boss back then, her name is Karen Kerr. She's also a venture capitalist now. She assigned me a project that essentially became movie analytics. So Harsh was my, he was my co-founder and CEO. He was a postdoc at USC getting his, um, completing his research. And I got in some patents around the use of smartphones to track physical activity, essentially caloric expenditure. And also he had gotten some patents around some behavioral models to get people to exercise more. And so he was looking for an opportunity to commercialize that research. One of the things that really struck me about Harsh that made me gravitate towards him and his work was Harsh was very bent on becoming an academic. So he was in this phase where he could become a tenured professor, or he could go into industry and do whatever he wanted to do, you know, not in academia. And he said, Ade, I don't want to be an academic. I want to do products that are going to reach millions of people. That to me became something that I'm looking back was a very important attribute. You know, I had worked on so many projects at USC that the technology was great and groundbreaking, but they were never really going to become commercial successful ventures because there was no passionate leader for it. You know, the, the researchers kind of wanted to keep their tenured positions 
and they didn't really want to go out and start a company. And so in this case, you had Harsh who was hell-bent on starting a company. And he also had a, an open-mindedness about, you know, it didn't have to be exactly related to what he was doing. So we didn't have to literally try to commercialize that particular patent. He just wanted to do something that was in that arena. And so to me, that was like, um, I, I, I felt that one, this is an interesting area, but we don't have the f- problem or solution figured out yet, but I have something that's really brilliant that I feel like if we put our minds together, we would find a market opportunity for this technology and be able to build a company. Back then I asked him a question. I said, you know, so we all know we should exercise and that's important, right? But like, like we started this conversation with, right? Motivation, right? But why do people wait till they have a big event before they, they, they change? I was like, when healthcare is exercise so important to the recovery process that patients will be motivated to exercise. And that was an interesting question back then. And we didn't know the answer. So we said, why don't we go and talk to all the clinicians at USC's medical school, it's called USC Keck. And I said that question, like where, where, where are people motivated in healthcare to exercise? You know, we got a lot of feedback, you know, from them around chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and heart failure. And they were like, exercise is very important in preventing the, the, the disease, but also very important in the recovery process. And so it was through that that we started to kind of narrow the scope of what we wanted to do into like this chronic disease management arena more broadly. Um, but I had a very interesting encounter with someone from the American Heart Association. I met him at some Black History event at Google in Santa Monica. He was like, you know, what do you do? And I told him what we did. And he said, you know, I work for the American Heart Association. We're very passionate about exercise. So why don't you send me some ideas and proposals on how we can work with the organization to, to use technology to get people to be more active? And so I sent him some, some ideas and he forwarded that to the leadership of the AHA. And they came back to us and they said, that is cool, but there's this area of cardiac rehab that we've been spending a lot of time and money trying to advocate for it. And we think that the future of cardiac rehab is virtual. And so would you be interested in building a technology for us to do some research studies to validate that, you know, telecardiac rehab or virtual cardiac rehab is, would be a viable option. And so we were like, sure, we'll do it. You know, so they started applying for some research grants. They never really got any grants, but Hush and I kind of talked to us, I said, what is this cardiac rehab thing anyways? So why don't we go out and do our own research our customer discovery around cardiac rehab? Let's see, you know, what we can do. So we had this strategy of back then Western students. So I think it's always interesting when you, you play the student card where a lot of people want to talk to you as a student. So we said, hey, we're students at USC. We're trying to build this app for cardiac rehab, but we had no idea what you do. So can you tell us what you do in cardiac rehab? What are the biggest challenges? And what do you think is the future? And so we interviewed about 100 cardiac rehab centers, just asking them those three questions. And everybody told us the same thing. Cardiac rehab is great. It's a service for people who've recently had a heart attack. When they do cardiac rehab, they live longer. They have fewer readmissions. The problem is less than 20% of people do it today because they can't get to a rehab center that's close enough to their home or work, or they have to travel. And then there are other factors like the cost of the program that makes it very expensive for patients to do. And so their vision was, if there was a way for them to be able to do, deliver cardiac rehab at home, that would be effective and powerful. And so we're like, hmm, like we have at this point almost 70 people telling us the same thing about like cardiac rehab and why it's effective and, and, and things like that. We kind of held on to that. 
And the next question we had, and one of the things we learned from customer discovery is the importance of science and clinical validation in healthcare. So many people are telling us, yeah, but if you were to create a virtual rehab app or program, we're going to want to make sure that, you know, it's safe for people. There's research behind it that shows how it's effective. That was a requirement for them to buy, essentially. And so Harsha and I started doing another set of research, and we're looking at who done any kind of work in virtual rehab from a clinical perspective. Like, had any organization done any clinical studies to show that that kind of model worked? And so we found that at Stanford, they had done a bunch of research in this space for over 20 years. And they created a model called Multifit that was very effective, that essentially showed that they could get four times more people to do cardiac rehab at home, and the clinical outcomes were the same as if they went to you know, a brick and mortar location. They did it in a very old school paper-based way where people got like a binder and the nurse would call them every week and kind of ask them, what did you eat? And what was your blood pressure? And it was kind of very archaic in the way it was, it was delivered, but they had fantastic outcomes. We were like, hey, it'd be amazing if we could partner with Stanford and take this research and digitize it and essentially be able to create this virtual rehab product that's based on, you know, over 20 years of research. We, I literally cold called Nancy Houston Miller, who's our chief clinical officer now. She used to be the director of cardiac rehab at Stanford before. And I said, hey, you know, same pitch. Grad students trying to build an alpha cardiac rehab. We saw your research, we think it's amazing. You know, she picked up the phone number one and we had a great conversation the first time. And essentially me and Harsh every week, we had a strategy of just finding a reason to talk to Stanford team. And so we always had like a question that we asked them every, every week. And it went from like phone conversations to flying out to Palo Alto and hanging out at Starbucks on, on, on University Avenue. And it took us a year to build our relationship with Stanford. By the end of 2015, they agreed to walk us into the technology licensing office and they helped us negotiate a deal with Stanford to essentially license all their research they had done in virtual cardiac rehab um, to us. And you know that was something that I feel very grateful for and very fortunate for to be kind of a custodian of, of that research. And Nancy and Dr. DeBusk and, and Linda, who were at Stanford, also were planning on retiring, but they agreed to join our company in some form. So Linda became joined us full-time, Nancy and Bob were more part-time. And so they helped us kind of like take all that research and translate it into a digital product. And they're still with the company today, you know, we're now a um, couple of years into that license. Um, and it's an exclusive global license with Stanford for that research. And so they've helped us. So with Stanford behind us, we're able to go raise some, you know, venture capital, build the product, launch it. And so that's kind of how we got here. So long, long answer to your question, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the founding story of movie analytics. Wow. So you license technology from two universities is that what i'm understanding no so we ended up not licensing the usc okay not from usc just from stanford don't just listen get engaged i host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits what's a startup tech nonprofit you ask a startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new tech meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal cost, and nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com 
and click on Giving Circle. Any, any advice given your background working with the technology transfer office and doing this license with Stanford? I think that different offices have different attitudes. Andy, say more about that? Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, you know, different, different universities have different philosophies. I think what was pretty fascinating about Stanford is that they just had this attitude of like, we want to get this out of the door like as soon as possible. So they were more interested in kind of getting the IP into the real world. They, number one, we did that deal in a month and a half. It was pretty quick. Like I was pretty surprised as to like how fast we were able to do that deal. We told them initially they proposed a set of terms to us. We told them that, you know, that wasn't very favorable to the business model. And so we went from like paying them like a per person license to like a flat license. And then we also... They said, hey, we'll also invest in movie analytics to, to keep our equity. So we give them some equity. We pay them an annual license. Um, but they said, you know, whenever you want to raise any kind of future funding rounds, we're in for 10% of that round so that we can keep our, our, our parada. And so that was like, oh, wow. Okay, so you're not just going to also license on the product. You're also going to be an investor. And to Stanford, it was very, very forward thinking, you know, and very pro-commercialization. Now, I'm a Trojan and I love the Trojan family, but I feel like the USC's technology transfer office was not as proactive in that way. I think they thought of licensing IP as almost like a, a business venture. And so they were trying to get more of a more immediate return for it. So they wanted the startups to pay a little bit more, more money upfront to license the technology. And also the terms were also a little bit more onerous on the startups. We tried for like a couple of years to license that IP. And, you know, at the same time, the business model kept pivoting to the point where we actually didn't need it anymore. And so we just never did that, that deal because we didn't need that IP by the time we had figured out what we wanted to do with the business. Fascinating. I would assume that Stanford is a more successful tech transfer office in terms of dollars generated back for the university. Just an assumption. Yeah. I wonder if there's any lessons there in that different attitudes that you encountered that's fascinating yeah i think it's just more thinking like you know they're thinking more like investors and it's just like hey let's get it out and let's make it easy for the startup and so i think that attitudes help them a lot now obviously stanford's in a place where they're pre-endowed and they don't need to make a lot of revenue in the short term from a lot of those intellectual properties they have too many you know googles and lots of like you know unicorns that have come out of there so you know i feel like that perspective is also based on on some of that factor too, but anyways. Right. They have the capital to be able to think longer term. Yep. I'd be curious to know more about the numbers today for moving analytics, number of patients, money raised, anything else you can share? Yeah. So last year we, we served about 2000 patients. Um, That's our all time high. You know, this year we have contracts almost triple that volume and we're just, we just finalized actually last Friday some additional capital. So we're announcing that we've raised an additional six million. Um, well, congratulations. Thank you to help further our work. So to date, we've raised a total of nine and a half million dollars. Um, and so that's some of, of the metrics. But I think um, we're pretty excited now just for just the growth. I think with, with some of the customers we have, um, I mean, 
just the amount of volume we could do with each of them is pretty, pretty. I mean, one of them has like 10,000 eligible cardiac rehab patients every year. Another one has like 100,000. And so I think it's it's now kind of for us to use this capital to start to put in the infrastructure to help us be able to scale, you know, and be able to really capture, you know, the the value of, of, of the true value of our, our, our customer contract. I think the contracts we have right now are still kind of considered pilots where the customers are kind of saying, hey, let's start off with, let's just call it a thousand patients, right? So that we can kind of see how this goes. Well, we want to be in a place, you know, in the next quarter or two where we can say, hey, bring 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 all your patients to us and, you know, let, 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 let's truly penetrate um, your population. And so, so yeah, so that's that's kind of where we are. So you're raising money in the midst of tripling your patient numbers and and set up to scale even more, but you still find time to pay it forward and to help other people. You started, for example, this nonprofit Maine. I'd love to hear more about. Yeah, so Maine, Maine is an interesting one. Where so Maine is the multicultural angel investor network, and that that's a nonprofit I started. That really came out of being a black founder. You know, obviously, I've been fortunate to raise venture capital and to be able to grow a company successfully so far. I get every week at least three to five other black founders that reach out to me and be like, hey, Ade, you know, really inspired by your work. I have this idea and I want to raise venture capital and I don't know how to go about doing it. A lot of times, you know, I think when it when a culture right now where entrepreneurship is is pretty sexy and almost everybody knows about entrepreneurship, you know, like Shark Tech has done a good job of like democratizing the idea of like venture capital and how all those things work. So a lot of people are thinking about like, hey, I, I want to get external you know, investors for my venture, um, regardless of the stage. In talking to many founders, I think one of the things I realized, one, they needed to get, you know, the friends and family and the angel round before you get to venture capital, because you obviously have to show traction to get VC eventually. And when you think about how a lot of early stage and angel investing works, it's really kind of, you invest in people you know, right? Like if I'm an angel investor writing 10 to 50K checks, I'm going to invest in people that are in my network, in my own community, people that are building solutions to problems that I, I can empathize with. When I thought about that, you know, for a lot of Black founders, there are a lot of, not a lot of people in their communities who are writing, you know, angel checks, right? Now, there are lots of athletes that have money, right? And they have there are a lot of professionals and executives of color. But, you know, up until, you know, very recently, the idea of angel investing hasn't been something that's been very popular in, in our community. And so the whole vision for Maine is that, you know, is really to create a culture of angel investing amongst, you know, executives of color or, or professionals of color so that, you know, they can find the next big thing in their own community, right? So the idea is how do I take an executive and give them some education around how venture capital works, you know, help them understand like, you know, how the deal was, structure typically you know i get some some founders that tell me that like hey you know i talked to my uncle's friend but they they want to give me twenty thousand dollars for 50 percent of the business <laughs> that's clearly not going to work and you know so it's kind of like how do you just educate our real people around like how these deals are done and eventually kind of connect them to plug them back into the bigger you know angel investing ecosystem right that every city has like an angel group or things like that and so that's that's the vision for, for me. Last year was pandemic and just the pressure from moving analytics. 
Um, we didn't do too many activities compared to the last year, um, but it's something that you know I'm hoping that as as I um, kind of get used to the new pace of, of 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 work for us, that you know kind of going back and creating some just is we around like awareness and education for for you know professionals of color to to kind of get into this whole angel investing game, you know. So that's that's the goal of Maine, and the the vision is by having more angel investors, you're going to have more startups that are going to get the friends and family round, the pre-seed round, the seed round, the seed, you know, series A and eventually IPO. And so when we think about like representation in venture capital um, or in entrepreneurship, I think a big part of that equation is, you know, the angel investment, that very early stage when, you know, it's pretty much a concept, you know, and a brilliant founder. And so that's my vision for how we address some of those inequities is to get, you know, our own community to, to back those companies. And so that's, that's a vision for me. And what is the bit of advice you would give to an aspiring angel? You know, I think about like <laughs> one of my angel investors, I met him through USC. So he's, he's an African, his name is Chris Backus, an entrepreneur has done different businesses. And I met him through our Black Alumni Association at USC. And it's kind of funny how that relationship kind of evolved where, you know, I met him the first, it was like a Christmas party that USCBA threw every year. And so I met him the first year, kind of told him what I was doing. And then the second, you know, Christmas, I told him about what I was doing. And by the third one, he was like, hey, you know, I really want to invest in, in this. So he called up one of his friends and together they put in a hundred thousand into us. and. You know, that was like, wow, like, you know, this guy kind of trusted me. Um, but I think one of the things that probably if you asked him, you know, it was just that we kept in touch and he kept seeing that progress. And, you know, he's been one of my most supportive investors. You know, um, I feel like I knew that $50,000 was a big amount of investment for him. You know, like he he's well to do, but, you know, he's, he's not like sold a public company for or something like that and so that investment was it was a, it was a sizable investment that that he made but i never got in the pressure of just like he he just every quarter he will he will email me and be like hey Adi, let's let's go grab you know lunch or dinner and he'll come pick me up and we'll go and we'll talk about everything that's going on in the business and he'll find a way to introduce us um to different people and he's just really been a good like you know friend slash mentor slash advisor and whenever he sees any kind of article that is remotely related to what we're doing he would like pass it along and so when i think about angel investors you know it's really just finding someone that you're passionate about like you you're passionate about what they're doing you think that they're doing something that's going to be beneficial society and you know it's just been i guess supportive and so obviously this is from a founder's perspective on that so this is, that's kind of, i guess one one idea one thought you know, to share with the prospective angel. It's a great vision of how to be a helpful, engaged angel investor. And if you're adding that value and having that long-term perspective that we talked about Stanford having, you can you can build uh, a lot of wealth yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and create good things in the world. To wrap up, I'm, I'm curious, uh, where can people follow you online or find out more about the business? Yeah, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. If you just do LinkedIn.com, I think it's slash IN slash ADE, Adesanya. So A-D-E hyphen A-D-E-S-A-N-Y-A. 
and so you'll be able to find me there. And personally, I, I put a lot of things on Instagram. So it's Adi underscore Adi one. So that's that's how you can find me online. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Maz. Good catching up with you. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.